Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Alex Lawson, Executive Director of Social Security Works, who takes a critical look at the Republican Party's latest plan to cut Social Security and Medicare benefits and policy alternatives to strengthen these popular programs. Elizabeth Yampierre, an environmental and climate justice leader who explains how climate and pollution regulations were sacrificed to reach the debt ceiling deal. And Robert Green II, assistant professor of history at Claflin University, who discusses why we must ensure the Juneteenth federal holiday remains radical and relevant to today's civil rights struggles. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Mountains of coal are piling up in Newcastle, Australia, the world's largest coal port. Despite global climate change commitments to phase out coal, Newcastle is doing a booming business. Asian nations, including Japan, South Korea, and Vietnam, are eager to buy the coal that passes through the port. Climate activists around the world are pressing Western banks and global energy companies to end all coal extraction. The United Nations says coal output must fall 11% annually to meet current climate targets. The International Energy Agency is working to prevent new coal mines from opening. Although some major banks have signed commitments for net-zero carbon emissions by 2050, these pledges seem to have little impact on the coal industry. The Economist reports that global demand for coal hit a new high in 2022. Emerging from a COVID pandemic slowdown, both India and China's energy needs are rapidly growing. In Asia, coal is still cheaper than renewable energy sources. The biggest lenders backing expansion of the coal industry are Japanese megabanks, SMBC and Mitsubishi, followed by the Bank of China and American banks J.P. Morgan Chase and Citigroup. For two years, indigenous activists in Colombia have organized direct action protests against the Irish packing giant Smurfit Kappa over its logging operations. The Dublin-based company that produces cardboard for the world market owns more than 68,000 hectares of forest plantations in the South American nation. Colombian activists who have occupied these forests complain local farmers have lost land cultivated for food to corporate monoculture, while the use of agrochemicals have caused extensive environmental damage to local rivers and streams. In Colombia, demands for land reclamation are often met with violent repression by paramilitary groups and security forces. Land reform activists who have long been accused of being communists or guerrillas constantly face death threats and have seen several of their members murdered. Smurfit Kappa denies involvement in the violence but acknowledges the company has called on local law enforcement agencies to intervene to protect their private property rights. In these Times reports that since 1964, 
armed Colombian paramilitary groups have used violence and intimidation to displace millions of small farmers. That has led to the transfer of 7 million hectares of land to large landowners, including multinationals like Smurfit Kappa. A 2017 Oxfam report found Colombia has the most unequal land distribution in all of Latin America. Every five years, Democrats and Republicans in Congress wrestle over the final shape of the Farm Bill, where billions of dollars in farm subsidies are allocated to various constituencies. Progressive Democrats work to prevent cuts to the food stamp program received by 42 million poor Americans, while conservative Republicans fight to maintain and increase subsidies for their big ag campaign contributors. Over recent decades, the Farm Bill has united liberals and conservatives to protect the basic framework of the legislation, but this year that framework could be upended. The American Prospect reports Democratic Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey and Republican Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa are working together with a coalition of anti-monopoly and conservation advocates in an effort to redirect U.S. agriculture policy to benefit independent farmers rather than big ag and factory farming operations that harm the environment. Each year, independent farmers, cattle ranchers, medium-sized corn and soybean growers suffer economic damage from farm bill policies that favor big agriculture and corporate concentration. This year's coalition of family farm advocates and environmentalists aren't under any illusions about the challenges ahead, but so far, many of the key proposals spearheaded by Booker and Grassley are picking up traction with members of both parties. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. During President Biden's February 7th State of the Union address, he called out Republicans on their plan to sunset or make cuts to Social Security and Medicare in the debt ceiling limit and budget negotiations. When Republicans in the audience shouted liar and cheered him, the president said he took that as a sign that cuts to the nation's social safety net programs would be off the table. Fast forward to June 15th, when the 175-member Republican Study Committee, of which three-quarters of its members are House GOP representatives, released its proposed 2024 budget that would cut Social Security and Medicare. Republicans want to gradually raise Social Security's full retirement age up from the current level of 67 to 69 for those born in 1960 or later. On Medicare, the GOP plan would require disabled Americans to wait longer before getting benefits and convert Medicare from a government program into a privatized voucher system, eliminating guaranteed affordable access to Medicare for the nation's senior citizens. All this while slashing taxes for the rich. Republicans explain that their proposed cuts are necessary to address an expected shortfall on the Social Security Trust Fund as soon as 2035, 
due to the aging of the U.S. population and declining birth rates. But opponents of cuts maintain that removing the cap on the amount of wages subject to the Social Security payroll tax would easily fix the shortfall problem. Your reporter spoke with Alex Lawson, Executive Director of Social Security Works, who explains why the Republicans' proposed cuts to the nation's social safety net programs are unnecessary, what policy changes are needed to address Social Security's long-term sustainability, and strengthen the program for decades to come. It's really amazing how the establishment corporate media distorts this story, you know, all through the debt ceiling, which is actually what we were most focused on, the, the clearest present danger to Social Security, which is now off the table, uh, was the, the debt ceiling. And throughout that whole fight, we'd have to fight the corporate media because they're like, well, we don't really know what the Republicans want. And you're like, what do you mean? <laughs> they write it down. You go to the RSC budget, the Republican Study Committee budget that we're talking about. This is not new. This is the same thing they've put forward for over a decade. This document is the belief system, the guiding ideology of the modern Republican Party is the document that we're talking about, the RSC budget. And, you know, there are a lot of details, but it really comes down to Stealing working people's money by cutting our earned benefits, right? When If you cut Social Security, you're just reaching into my pocket and stealing my money because I paid for those benefits. So if you're taking the benefits away, you're just stealing my money. Uh, and then handing that money to the ultra-rich in the form of tax handouts. I want to make it clear that you know the stakes that we're fighting for right now are not in radically rewriting this system so that working people are advantaged over capital. Um, right now, we're still just trying to slow down uh, the looting of the American people by capital uh, in its guise as private equity or Wall Street banks. But all of it is this fundamental fight that's been, as you know, going on forever uh, between labor, people, and capital, money, the ultra-rich. Uh, and so that's, that's what the RSC document lays out really clear. The Republicans are the party that fundamentally, fundamentally advances the uh, privileges and corruption of the billionaire class over uh, working people. And that's not to say that the Democrats then are the exact opposite. And for too long, it, was, it wasn't clear on things like Social Security, but that's where we're winning. Now it's become more and more and more clear to the American people and especially to elected Democrats that they need to stand up strongly for these programs that are Democratic programs to begin with. So it is really heartening to see President Biden um, out there really strongly on Social Security and Medicare, standing against these cuts, ripping the RSC budget to shreds when it came out. I think the real challenge is still communicating to the American people how simple uh, the fight is right now and getting past the propaganda of the corporate media. Alex, the Republicans talk about a timeline where Social Security will run out of money or people's benefits will be cut back uh, because the flow of money into the system is decreasing. If you could briefly discuss 
the alternatives to cutting benefits and raising retirement age and all that, what is the clear and very easy way to make Social Security and Medicare uh, solvent for many decades to come? And not just solvent, but we can expand the systems. It's as simple as taxing rich people. Now, in the case of Social Security, what that means is there's currently a cap. Uh, The more money you make right now, the less you pay into Social Security. The vast majority of the American people pay into Social Security on 100 percent of their income. Uh, But a billionaire, a person who makes hundreds of millions of dollars a year, is only paying into Social Security on about the first $160,000. And so what we do is get rid of that cap. We scrap the cap. We have millionaires and billionaires pay the same rate uh, as the rest of us into Social Security on all of their income, including all that tax haven stuff and all just all of it. And we do that. We can expand benefits. The only real plan, the only serious plan on Social Security that's out there right now is from the Democrats. Uh, and it, in the in the Senate, we have Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren's plan. It increases benefits for every single person in this country by $200 a month and other increases, targeted and uh, across-the-board increases. Uh, And it pays for it by going after uh, the cheats in the system, who are the billionaires. They're cheating the system. They're paying, in many cases, absolutely no taxes. And, in fact, they're just hoovering up money. That was Alex Lawson, executive director of Social Security Works. Learn more about groups opposing the Republican Party's proposed cuts to Social Security and Medicare by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The debt ceiling deal, officially known as the Fiscal Responsibility Act that passed Congress and was signed into law by President Joe Biden in early June, included a permitting reform provision that opponents call West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin's dirty deal. The measure had nothing to do with the debt ceiling itself, but made critical changes to the nation's bedrock environmental law. The National Environmental Policy Act, known as NEPA, which was passed by Congress in 1970. NEPA gave communities impacted by all manner of development projects a real voice in trying to stop or change those projects they deemed harmful to their health or environment. Besides requiring completion of the frack gas Mountain Valley Pipeline in Virginia and West Virginia, and reducing the time allowed for, and the extent of reviews, the core requirements of NEPA would be amended to limit the government's obligation to consider environmental impacts to those that are reasonably foreseeable. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Elizabeth Yampierre, Executive Director of UPROSE, an environmental justice organization based in Brooklyn, New York, and board co-chair of the Climate Justice Alliance, a network of more than 70 community-based organizations. Here she discusses the changes that weaken NEPA in the debt ceiling deal. We know that the president signed the Fiscal Responsibility Act June 3rd, and then less than five days later on June 7th, the sky is orange in New York City, and those of us from EJ communities are struggling to breathe 
inside our very homes, right? So I think it's important to put those two things together for people to understand that we're talking about protections for fossil fuel companies when we need statutory support and protections, when it's literally our communities that need more, not less, and our communities that are literally choking from the consequences of the extractive uh, economy. What this statutory thing did was it literally took advantage of the moment, right? It took advantage of a moment necessary to avoid a government shutdown, to chip away at environmental protections, including making the first statutory changes to NEPA in nearly 40 years, which now makes it easier for projects to get permitting uh, and reduces federal oversight on the environment. We know that the permitting reforms are in the service of pipelines and sustaining um, the extractive economy and the fossil fuel industry. And that the changes uh, to NIPA help fast track things like the Mountain Valley Pipeline by streamlining the permitting process, including limiting community input on fossil fuel projects. While people can sort of get lost in the pages, for us, what it means is that they are fast-tracking protections for the fossil fuel industry at the moment when scientists are telling us that we have seven years, seven years before recurrent extreme weather events, and we're seeing this now, right? We're seeing the lack of protection of wetlands and how that affects places like the Gulf South, Puerto Rico, even places in, in Brooklyn. And so this makes it more challenging for communities that have already been challenged as a result of the legacy of environmental racism, right? So it is really concerning and really important to talk about how this is going to have an impact on our ability to not just survive, but even to thrive. Let me play devil's advocate for a minute. It says that bigger projects have to be completed. The EI, the Environmental Impact Statement, or EIS, has to be completed within two years. And for a smaller project um, that only needs an environmental assessment or an EA, that has to be completed in one year. That sounds kind of reasonable. Shouldn't we be able to figure out these things within two years or one year? Is there is there anything inherently wrong with trying to speed things up, including green projects up on the grid too? That's a good question, except that even peer review studies show that some of these project delays happen because of the lack of opportunities for stakeholder consultation. And this particular piece really strips us of meaningful community engagement. It is difficult sometimes to get communities engaged quickly. You have to think about who people in our communities are. They're working two or three jobs. They have two and three children. They are dealing with everything from extreme policing to ICE raids. And now we need to ask them to weigh in on the disparate impact of emissions on their health. And so it takes them a minute to process uh, the information. It takes us some time to break it down uh, and to make it accessible and digestible so that they could then weigh in as equals in decision-making in terms of its impact. So FAST almost always works for really deeply privileged communities and a pace that really works with our communities, provides them with access and opportunities to weigh in in meaningful ways. This does not do that. This is an homage to the power of the fossil fuel industry and the lack of backbone of the administration to declare uh, a climate emergency. There is this way of referring to us as the no people, the people who fight against everything, when we're being led by a vision 
uh, about how to deal with renewable energy, how to plan for Congress on how we can build a just renewable energy system that prioritizes energy conservation, distribution, uh, and responsibly cited energy. All of those things are our vision for the future. We're not just saying no. Uh, we're saying we've got alternatives that are viable. Uh, that are operational. A just transition is not just aspirational, it is operational, and we should be funding it. That was Elizabeth Yampierre, Executive Director of Uprose and Board Co-Chair of the Climate Justice Alliance. Learn more about how the debt ceiling deal weakened NEPA federal environmental regulations by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. June 19, 1865, about two months after Confederate General Robert E. Lee surrendered to the Union Army at Appomattox, Virginia, Gordon Granger, a Union general, arrived in Galveston, Texas, to inform enslaved African Americans that the Civil War had ended and slavery had been abolished. General Granger's announcement enforced the Emancipation Proclamation, which had been issued by President Abraham Lincoln nearly two and a half years earlier, on January 1, 1863. President Biden signed legislation in 2021 that made June 19th an official federal holiday, known as Juneteenth. Juneteenth has been celebrated by black communities across the U.S. for more than 150 years and is known as Juneteenth Independence Day, Freedom Day, or Emancipation Day. Your reporter spoke with Robert Greene II assistant professor of history at Claflin University, and senior editor of the award-winning Black Perspectives blog. Here he discusses the importance of the Juneteenth holiday and concern that as this annual celebration enters the mainstream, it risks being diluted by commercial exploitation and could lose its connection to America's history of slavery and racism, as well as its relevance to today's civil rights struggles. I think on the one hand, both uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day and Juneteenth share a problem that virtually all American holidays now have, which is over-commercialization. Uh, in a way, they have become as American as apple pie or baseball. Um, but these are issues that I think are particularly acute with holidays what is the black experience. So with Martin Luther King Jr. Day, uh, even back in the 70s and 80s, there was some reluctance amongst activists who were involved with the civil rights movement and other related social justice movements to make King's birthday a holiday because they foresaw what would happen with it becoming a commercialized holiday. Uh, the same is true of Juneteenth in the sense that uh, many activists were worried that Juneteenth is a holiday that celebrates a particular form of freedom, the end of slavery, but it doesn't recognize, number one, what has to be done here and now to ensure that the end of slavery means much more for all Americans. But number two, many activists and even historians worry that by celebrating Juneteenth in a particularly commercialized or sanitized way, it may also downplay how much black Americans had to do in the late 19th century to ensure those freedoms. 
After all, while Juneteenth does celebrate the end of enslavement in Texas and really represents the final and decisive end of the American Civil War, it doesn't get into the fact that Texas was one of the biggest hotbeds of anti-Reconstruction resistance during the 1860s and 1870s. Uh, historians like uh, Kadada Williams, W.E.B. Du Bois, and so many others have written extensively, uh, Eric Foner, about the Reconstruction era. And while Juneteenth is a celebration of black freedom, in a lot of ways it's also a reminder that there was a lot of work that still had to be done in the 1860s and 70s to make black freedom mean something more than just the end of slavery. And I think many activists worry that if you just hold on to visions of those holidays as just commercialized red, white, and blue holidays, they may lose the significance of thinking about freedom in different and varying degrees. Professor Green, what are some of the strategies and approaches to keep Juneteenth focused on the actual meaning of the struggle for freedom in this country rather than let it slip into irrelevance and commercialization? Well, I think there are two ways to do that. Number one is, again, on the national level, making sure that folks understand how Juneteenth ties into both Civil War and Reconstruction periods. I know that with many holidays, we, we have stripped so many of them of their actual meaning. Uh, Memorial Day and Veterans Day are two other examples of that as well. But on a national level, we have to keep the focus on the end of slavery and of the Civil War. But I think much of the battle of making Juneteenth really mean something for Americans is going to have to be fought on the local and the state level, meaning that uh, black Americans and other Americans are going to have to really uh, either incorporate or foster new local and state traditions to celebrate Juneteenth. Well, what I mean by that is linking it back to other black celebrations of freedom, like Emancipation Day and the like. Um, you have black communities all across this nation that have celebrated the 4th of July, Juneteenth, Emancipation Day, MLK Day, Frederick Douglass's birthday, and so forth in their own unique ways. I think finding ways to tie the story of Juneteenth into local stories of black resilience, black freedom, and the hopeful triumph of American democracy will be crucial to making sure that Juneteenth remains not just a, a holiday or a day off, but a holiday with some real significant meaning. This, of course, is going to be an uphill battle because folks love holidays. They love the more fun aspects of those, and we shouldn't lose sight of that either. But we have to keep the true meaning of Juneteenth at the heart of all of this. As Juneteenth has gained national prominence, uh, the very idea of teaching what Juneteenth is about is being suppressed all across the country. Again, I think this means that we have to do more work locally to make sure that Juneteenth retains its actual meaning. Juneteenth on a local level could mean things like voter registration drives. It could mean things like holding freedom schools or citizenship schools or the like to educate folks on not only what Juneteenth means, but what Juneteenth should mean to us in the 21st century as an extension of the push for black freedom, which, as we all know, is really a conversation about the extension of freedom for all Americans. That was Robert Greene II, Assistant Professor of History at Claflin University and Senior Editor of the Black Perspectives blog. Find a link to his article titled Keeping Juneteenth Radical and Related Commentary by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. 
You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archived programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WAAA in Epson, New Hampshire, KHOI in Ames, Iowa, KPOV in Bend, Oregon, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.